0: Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best Of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now, let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today I'm joined by Gary Tobbs, who is probably well known to most of you. He's an investigative journalist and has written a new book, The Case Against Sugar, which is by far, no question, absolutely the single best uh, copy I've ever read on documenting how the manipulation and fraud with the sugar industry has occurred. And it's just full of great surprises. So, welcome and thank you for joining us, Gary.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. McCullough, for having me.
0: Okay. So maybe we can go a little bit about your history, because probably some people don't know who you are. I'm sure they've heard of you. But my understanding is that you're an investigative journalist and really initially started in physics to debunk the uh, cold fusion theory. And then then what I'm unclear is, is how you progressed into to health. So maybe you can share your story with us.
1: My uh, educational background was in physics, uh, engineering. I went to journalism school, early eighties, I went into science reporting. And by the mid eighties realized that there was really a call for investigative science journalism, that scientists often get the wrong answer. And occasionally when they get the wrong answer, they prefer not to tell people or to obfuscate. And just like in any other field, investigative journalism can play a role. Uh, By the late 80s, as you pointed out, I, I did my second book on this scientific fiasco called Cold Fusion, and I had a lot of fans in the physics community and nuclear physics community who liked what I did, and some of those guys said to me, quite literally, if you're fascinated with bad science, with what they call pathological science, which is the science of things that aren't so, you should look at some of this stuff in public health. It's terrible. So beginning in the early 90s, I started reporting on public health and, and indeed some of the, a lot of the uh, rigor and, and rigorous methodology that I had been taught was absolutely fundamentally necessary to get a reliable result was considered sort of a luxury that you didn't have to do in public health research. It was too hard, it was too expensive, so you don't have to do it. And as a result, as I learned through the decade that followed a lot of the fundamental tenets Uh, our belief system about what constitutes a healthy diet was based on very shaky evidence, um, evidence that I think would never get even into a court of law, never, you know, let alone convicted in a court of law. So by the late 90s, I was looking into the idea that salt causes high blood pressure and dietary fat causes heart disease. I did a series of very long investigative award-winning reports for the journal Science uh, by 2001, I had done an infamous New York Times Magazine cover story called What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? Perhaps the most controversial piece they ever ran. And, um, and since then, I've been 100% working on this nutrition research. Two books that preceded the latest, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why We Get Fat. And then now just focusing on, on sugar and why we probably should consider it the primary evil in our diets uh despite the half century of bad science and ambiguous evidence
0: yeah and that's what we want to do today is go into some of those details it's a fascinating read uh so many great points i definitely want to focus on uh today so uh you make a a pretty strong argument that is the sugar excess sugar is a fundamental cause of diabetes obesity and pretty much all chronic degenerative diseases including Alzheimer's and and uh, Parkinson's so uh, and actually uh, it's a similar argument, and this is one of the points I wanted to review with you, is the incredible similarities between sugar, the sugar industry and the tobacco industry, and the same, some of the, it's the same flawed tobacco science that was used to support sugar. But maybe we could start at the beginning, uh, because what's really intriguing is the connection between slavery and, and how big sugar was the equivalent of big oil a century ago and how that, I mean, it just, that catalyzed so much social transformation. So there's so much history to this. So why don't you enlighten us from your perspective?
1: Well, that's one of the things we tend to forget in telling this story. And I wanted to bring it back into it in my book is that sugar was one of three or four different sort of drugs, for lack of a better word, that came out of the tropics with the colonization of the Americas and Asia and uh, worldwide trade in the 16th, 17th century and then changed the world. So sugar, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol to some extent, uh, various uh, drugs like opium, all sort of spread from where they originally colonized to Uh, the tropics and the Americas, and then back to Europe and back to Asia, and constituted, um, basically, they were the the trade on which empires were built. And sugar was particularly unique in this because sugar could not, um, cultivating sugar is an unbelievably arduous, painful, difficult job. And as such, you couldn't really pay anyone enough to do it, and you couldn't find populations that were poor enough to do it naturally, so instead what happened, beginning actually with the sugar trade in the Mediterranean, when it was controlled mostly by Middle Eastern populations, um, they started using slaves to cultivate sugar and when we started cultivating sugar in the in the americas and sugar came over on columbus's second voyage and was then first cultivated in brazil by uh taken there by columbus's pilot Pison. um they the native american populations in the caribbean and then brazil quickly died out from disease from the arduous labor from uh quite frankly contact with us with our ancestors and so they imported slaves to the tune of i think it was 12 million slaves lived and died working in the sugar fields
0: and, and, and 80% of those slaves were were a result of their working in the sugar fields right yes sugar
1: and you know, by 1830s, the emancipation movement beginning in the UK had finally um, put an end to the slave trade. It wasn't obviously until the 1860s in the Civil War that the use of slaves in, in the United States uh, ended. But this really shaped the culture. And it told you something about, to me, it said something about the context, what we were willing to live with for our sugar fixes. I mean, put quite simply, we were willing to, you know, enslave millions and millions of people um, simply so that we could get sugar shipped into Europe sugar shipped up to the Americas there was this triangular slave trade that sent sugar north to uh, refineries and matter of fact New York City much of the wealth in New York City in the 18th century came from sugar refineries and many of the wealthiest uh, families were originally sugar refiners and then uh, sugar and uh, rum was sent to. Canada to that were sent back to the caribbean and the sugar plantations so you had this um, you know basically the the commerce the heart of commerce in the 19th 18th 19th century was the sugar trade and uh, the governments very quickly learned both the uk and the us governments very quickly learned that this was a perfect item for taxation so because it was all uh you know, uh, all the sugar came from uh, from the Caribbean, from international sources. So you could tax it coming into the country, and in a sense, our governments themselves got addicted to the money that could be made by allowing sugar to flow into the nations. And this continued uh, in the UK through the late 19th century when it was finally uh, the sugar trade, sugar taxes were finally shut down. But in the US, we've never stopped with sugar tariffs because it's simply too valuable.
0: Interesting. I'm wondering if you, in your uh, investigations for writing this book, if you've encountered any of the social commentaries on sugar, because uh, as you were discussing this, it occurred to me that I never really read anything about that. But uh, did did most of the countries know that slaves were actually responsible for their sugar fix and they they, they essentially ignored it or suppressed it i mean did, what was the social commentary or or set, setting around those around those times what was
1: well the emancipationists and then the, the emancipationists in the uk when they went after the slave trade it did indeed boycott sugar for a while so they were aware of the price they were paying it was just <laughs> hard as it is to believe there wasn't the moral opprobrium against slavery in the early 19th century, the late 18th century, that there is, you know, there was following, uh, you know, the Civil War in the U.S., so it took the emancipationists 20 or 30 years to get the point across that this is simply unacceptable practice, that that regardless of the color of people's skins, everyone is human, everyone deserves equal treatment before the law and the right to control their own destiny. So, um, you know, what's interesting is most of the books about sugar really the the famous books about sugar, um, focused in on this history. And one of the things I wanted to do when I wrote my book, so they focused in on the slave trade, on the uh, ethical, moral issues involved with sugar. And I wanted to take that into the 20th century and really focus in on the health issues. So previous books like the the seminal classic Sweetness and Power by the um uh, anthropologist Sidney Mintz spends by 90% of the time, 90% of the book on the early history of sugar up until the 20th century, and then there's a little bit on the 20th century, and I wanted to take it into the 20th century when you see these epidemics of obesity and diabetes appear and discuss the implications.
0: Okay, why don't we start there then, entering into the 20th century, which is I believe about the time that the sugar industry really started to consolidate and organize and and uh, have a concerted effort to confuse manipulate and deceive the general population and it of course got became progressively even to this this century just like within the last year all the, the yeah. funding that gets exposed so maybe you can give us a little bit of historical context to uh, you know to to framework framework it.
1: Well, and again, keep in mind that um, through the 19th century, there are a lot of people saying sugar is bad for the health. There are a lot of people, you know, physicians, uh, commentators saying, look, you know, you start consuming sugar and and we see mental illness and depression and cancer and diabetes and disease. But nobody was quantifying it. Nobody really understood what this meant. And these were, you could see them as sort of fringe voices in the newspapers. Um, So the sugar industry... Didn't really have to consolidate in any main way because it wasn't, it was being coddled by the government that liked the taxes and were coming in based on, you know, from the sugar. And so um, it wasn't until people started putting together the diabetes epidemics that they were seeing with sugar, which started happening in the 1920s. So let's talk a little bit about the history of diabetes here. Um, you know, what we tend, the way we tend to think of it today is that diabetes and obesity are sort of exacerbated by sugar, that the problem is made worse. And you said, you know, what I do is I suggest that sugar is the fundamental problem. So by that, we mean add sugar to any population and sugar is the environmental trigger of this disease. So you've got... Diabetes and obesity, as rare as lung cancer, would be without cigarettes. And then you add sugar, and suddenly, over the course of 10 years or 50 years, depending on the rate at which sugar is added, in the genetic, uh, the genotype of the population, you see more and more obesity and diabetes emerging. And you could actually see this in the literature in the 19th century. So one story I tell in the beginning of the book is of Elliot Jocelyn, who became the most famous diabetes doctor in the twentieth century in the US and around the world. So when Jocelyn's he sees his first diabetes case when he's in med school at Harvard Medical School in the eighteen nineties. And then in eighteen ninety-eight with another physician named Reginald Fitz, a pathologist at Harvard. He goes back through hundreds of volumes of handwritten records of the Massachusetts General Hospital, the primary hospital in Boston that came into existence in 1824. So he looks at the patient records of every single patient at this hospital from 1824 to 1898, 48,000 records. And he comes up with 172 cases of diabetes total. And in fact, from 1824 through 1850, most years there were zero cases of diabetes. So here's a disease in which the the sequelae include kidney failure, amputation, gangrene, blindness, rotting teeth, um, eventually uh, death. And yet these patients were simply not showing up in the hospitals. And you find, uh, I was able to find about a half dozen different Attempts to quantify the diabetes rates in the 19th century, and again, it was an excruciatingly rare disease. One uh, influential British physician estimated that one in 50,000 individuals in the UK had diabetes. Uh, William Osler, the most the father of modern medicine in the U.S., who was practicing at Johns Hopkins, took the inpatient records from Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore from its opening year in 1889 to 1892 and found 10 cases out of something like 35,000 patients. And today we're talking about a disease that afflicts one in 11 Americans. OK. Well, well that,
0: let, me, let me just, that's full-blown diabetes. The pre-diabetic population is, is rapidly approaching one in three. Yeah, at least one in three, yes. Yeah. So now
1: we have a disease that's everywhere. It's an epidemic that's emerged everywhere in the world. Um, you know, Native American populations are particularly hard hit. South uh, Pacific Islanders are particularly hard hit. Middle Eastern populations are overwhelmed by these diseases. Um, Uh, The latest estimate I saw from the World Health Organization was one in nine adults worldwide had diabetes, which I find hard to believe, but that's the number that they're putting out in their statistics. Um, And yet again, 19th century, different methods of diagnosing it, um, different standards for diagnosing it. Basically, you would have to wait until people made it to the hospitals and the Point is they weren't getting to the hospitals. They, it, maybe there was something different about how hospitals worked in the 19th century that I couldn't identify. But you're looking at inpatient records in the hospitals of around one in three or four thousand, and VA hospitals in the United States today, is roughly 25%, maybe 40% of vets in the VA hospitals are diabetics, versus again one or one in three or four thousand in Boston and you know, the, the 19th century. So something dramatic has happened. And that's what, you know, I say, sugar, and when, and when people really started putting this together in the 1920s, beginning with uh, the, the New York Health Commissioner, a fellow named Haven Emerson, who pointed out that uh, in some of the statistics he had, there were 1,500%, 15-fold increases in diabetes rates in American cities since the Civil War, 400 Percent increases fourfold from 1900 to 1924, and and he said, you know, look, obviously the clear suspect is sugar. And in this sense, I don't actually blame the industry as much as I blame the scientific and medical community for what happened next. Um, These people were clueless about how to do good science, and they were clueless about critical skeptical thinking. I mean, I hate to speak poorly of them, but I guess I've done this my whole career <laughs> and as a result. Um, you know, what you have is, so type 2 diabetes, which is a disease that, that, that by far the largest, the most prevalent form of the disease, it's about 95% of cases, it uh, associates with overweight and obesity. So these physicians studying and nutritionists who are interested in this issue of what causes diabetes said, well, look, clearly obesity must cause it because this disease associates with obesity, and obesity is caused by eating too much and exercising too little, and that's all we have to know. And therefore, sugar isn't any different than any other carbohydrate, any other calorie, we know in Japan, they eat a lot of carbs, they don't have diabetes, and therefore we're not gonna blame sugar. And this became the conventional thing in the sugar industry.
0: Even, even such a it. yes, yeah, the energy right. balance theory.
1: Almost, it's the energy balance theory. We've probably talked about it before you and I, and it's in the book, I refer to it as the gift that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. Because once the obesity research has decided that obesity is caused merely by taking in more energy than we expend, and therefore all calories are equivalent. That became the defense of the sugar industry. And then beginning in the 1920s, you could find the sugar industry formed something called the Sugar Association. They put advertisements in newspapers pushing sugar consumption when physicians and researchers are really beginning to get sort of suspicious about sugar and diabetes. And they say, look, it's not fattening. It's got it's low calorie. A teaspoon of sugar is only 16 calories. That's less than, you know, five teaspoons is less than calories and fewer calories than an apple. Therefore, you know, enjoy your sugar. It's all about calories. And um, then they would advertise it based on this sort of very Uh, substandard science at the time is being benefit giving you more energy which it does do in the short term and being good for colds in your immune system in the winter and being good to cool you down and lemonade in the summer and a whole series of ads so they just they took the bad science a sort of nonsensical naive concept that the obesity and nutrition researchers had come up with that Obesity is just an energy balance issue, and they ran with it, and they continued running through it. And as you point out, you know, recently, last year, the New York Times reported that uh, Coca-Cola had funded something called the Global Energy Balance Network, and this was researchers who were going to point out that, you know, you don't get fat or diabetic because of how much Coke you drink. You get fat or diabetic because you're consuming more calories and you expend, and therefore, you should expend more and exercise. That was a sort of in a nutshell with the Global Energy Balance Network. And when once Coke pointed it out, um, once excuse me, once the New York Times pointed it out, uh, Coca-Cola immediately realized that this was a bad public relations move and pulled back. And the, the universities gave back the funding. And but they're still trying. And that energy balance idea, as long as it's in place, it's it's the defense against Coke. It's not about Coke. It's about too many calories.
0: Yeah, it's still the strategy they use to this day. But I'm wondering if we can head back, you know, two generations ago to the 40s and 50s, when yeah. <clears throat> two of the more prom- most prominent uh, researchers cl- slash clinicians uh, of the of the mid 20th century would be that have influence on this would be do- uh, Dr. Ansel Keyes and Dr. Frederick Stair from Harvard. Was a PhD, Ansel Keys was an MD. Now, Keys, as many people as aware, is responsible for the low essentially catalyzing the adoption of the low-fat diet, which Killed literally probably hundreds of millions of people in the U.S. prematurely, uh, but what most people, but he's actually idolized in the in the plant-based community and the vegans, and the, you know they they think he's a great great guy, uh, and he very well may have been because you know he promoted some good things like Mediterranean diet, which clearly has lots of benefits. But what they are unaware, and I want you to expand on this point, is that he his primary source of funding, almost his exclusive source of funding, was the sugar industry. And how could you? possibly impart be impartial if that's your primary funder
1: well this is what um so again the sugar industry as i said in 1928 or so they found the sugar association and the idea is to actually um well, we won't get in. Let's just say that the Supreme Court put them out of business in the 1930s <laughs> as a, in their antitrust measures. But then, as the World War II started, an interesting phenomena happened. So first of all, the, the US government, the armed forces realized that some large proportion of the prospective troops are malnourished. And particularly, they have terrible teeth. And they're not going to be able to be drafted into the military as we need it. And during wartime, the uh, Invariably, during wartime, large uh, sugar um, sources of sugar are shut down. In this case, South Pacific island growers, Philippine sugar growers, were clearly going to be lost to um, to the the sugar trade. The, the European sugar beet industry is going to be lost to the sugar trade, and so they they know that they're going to have to institute sugar rationing. And in order to do this, they start preparing for it by telling Americans, finally, how bad sugar is for them. And there's a series of government reports and American Heart Association reports and American Medical Association, you know, chimes in and says, look, you don't need to eat sugar. Sugar is making you unhealthy. It's 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 the, the worst thing for you. So it's going to be a good thing when we go into sugar rationing. And the sugar industry is a little bit terrified about this, first, because they don't want to see people's sugar habits change. And second, because they know from history that post-war, there's going to be a glut of sugar on the market. And this is going to be as bad as the absence of sugar during the war. So they want to make sure that they come out of the war with people eating as much sugar as they can force. And again, this is you know, I, whether it's vino or as bad as the tobacco industry, I don't know. I mean, it's just business as usual for the sugar industry. So, they again, they institute this sugar association. One of the things they're going to do is fund research. This is 1942 to demonstrate that sugar is good for you and, and also to look for other uses of sugar because they realize if they come out of the war and people aren't eating as much sugar, they've got accustomed to low sugar diets, therefore they maybe we can figure out different ways to use sugar like in paint for instance or other chemicals. So they fund major research projects at the biggest universities in the country and some of the most influential researchers working in that day so harvard had just formed a nutrition department under this young nutritionist named fred stair and the sugar industry became one of their primary sources of funding from the get-go and so keys at the university of minnesota was in the process of launching one of the most famous nutrition experiments ever his human starvation experiment in which he semi-starved conscientious objectors to understand what the the US troops would be confronting when they finally liberated Europe and came upon, you know, one half starved population after the other that Starvation study was funded by this was in, at least in part funded by the sugar industry and the sugar industry would bring stare and keys to New York for press conferences to discuss this and again one of the you know the things we have to remember we tend to judge these people based on our moral standards of today but in the 1940s this was what business was and what academia was so even you know the idea was you form nutrition research departments to create nutritionists who could then go work for industry and industry would help you fund this and industry would benefit because industry was a good thing wasn't until the late 1960s and the rise of Ralph Nader that the the industry influence and academic research was seen as this pernicious involvement. So beginning in the 1940s, we have the sugar industry funding Fred Stair at Harvard and Ansel Keys in Minnesota. And perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, they became two of the most influential nutritionists in the country. As you put out, uh, Keys by pushing the low-fat dogma. And vehemently arguing that the anti-sugar research was wrong or the anti-sugar interpretations were wrong. And in the 1960s, it was a British researcher, a British nutritionist named John Yudkin who was going after sugar with all the fervor and I think far better science than Keyes was going after fat. And the assumption was if Yudkin was right, Keyes was wrong, which is a pretty good assumption. And so Keyes went after Yudkin, and Keyes was not that nice of a guy. He might (laughs) I mean, it's his reputation, even from the people who knew him. He's the kind of person that, you know, scientists say he doesn't suffer fools gladly, but often that's just a synonym for, you know, uh, I can't use that word. Um. Well, you know, interestingly,
0: friend. he lived to be 102 years old, I think. He
1: did. He did live to be, and, it, and to his credit, there was another his sort of chief anti-fat uh, assistant, an anti-fat advocate, was a Chicago uh, a cardiologist named Jeremiah Stamler. and mm-hmm. Northwestern is yeah. still alive and probably pushing 100 today. Wow. Um, you know, but again is that because they avoided fat actually in the 60s when time magazine put Ansel keys on the cover they um as the face of nutrition in america they described his diet and they said he and his wife margaret don't eat roast meats you know like roast beef pork or lamb more than three times a week And today most <laughs> of us would think you know boy if i have pork once a month or steak once a month i'm killing myself and here keys was only eating it three times a week so you know there's a lot of fuzzy thinking with all this diet stuff so anyway it's- Fred Stair, let's get back
0: to Stair. Yeah, um, sure.
1: Fred Stair ran the nutrition department at Harvard. I mean, he considered it part of his business was to raise money from industry for his nutrition department. He talked about this proudly in his little memoir he wrote. Um, he raised millions from the sugar industry, from the cereal industry, and he was their man. He was the sugar industry's man. When they needed something done to combat sugar, You know, to go to Congress, talk on the radio, on a TV show, and he was a charming, good looking guy. He was very quick witted. He was a great interview, and you know, he was the sugar industry's man. And this was later exposed by about 1977 by Mike Jacobson at the Center for Science and the Public Interest. But for 20 years, virtually, Fred Stair and the Harvard Nutrition Department, funded in part by the sugar industry, pushed this. Belief that fat was the problem and sugar was harmless, and they won. They just won when the, the <laughs> Brits arguing that sugar was the problem, doing research, couldn't sort of overwhelm this kind of Harvard-centric line that was funded, you know, in large part by the sugar industry. And again, I think Stair believed what he was saying. I don't think he was.
0: As did Keyes, I'm sure. And yeah. it's really kind of tragic when you reflect on it, because if if our country had adopted adopted what Yudkin was promoting, I mean, we literally tens of millions of lives would have been saved, or more, maybe 100 million.
1: In the 1970s, sugar consumption actually started to come down, mm-hmm. and it was because of this anti-sugar movement, mm-hmm. and they knew it. Mm -hmm. And they put together this series of reports, very influential reports, with Fred Stare as the point man at Harvard. They had a white paper called Sugar and the Diet of Man. And they paid all these researchers who believed that dietary fat was the problem to write a critical report about the sugar science and to conclude that sugar was not. Basically, this was an early example of sort of paying people to confuse the science. And this report was then used by a FDA committee that was judging whether sugar was generally recognized as safe, and they concluded that it generally was because generally most researchers thought fat was the problem. And so as sugar starts to actually dip in the 70s, the sugar industry launches this public relations campaign to, to boost its image. They get the FDA to inadvertently go along And by the 1980s, we've embraced this idea that dietary fat is a problem, and sugar consumption now starts to rise. And the other factor there is high fructose corn syrup comes in in the late 1970s. So when I say sugar consumption, I mean what the FDA would call caloric sweeteners. And that's sucrose, which is what we think of as sugar, and high fructose corn syrup. And I think one of the reasons it really started to rise is because we just didn't realize high fructose corn syrup was a, another variation on sugar, perhaps the well, worst one. Well,
0: and it was less expensive too, I mean the Japanese yeah. innovation of processing it Made that made it drop dramatically, and it was inserted in almost all processed foods.
1: Yeah, well, also the Reagan administration instituted in the Farm Bill in 1982 a series of policies that guaranteed that high fructose corn syrup would always be cheaper than sucrose. And in the same way, by tariffing, uh, putting having tariffs on the import of sugar, basically what the Reagan administration did is it guaranteed that domestic producers of sugar would always make money. It guaranteed that the corn refiners would always make money, and then it took away the imports. So international uh, sugar producers wouldn't be able to sell in the U.S. as well, but our sugar producers would always make, they would never have a disincentive to stop growing sugar and trying to get us to eat it.
0: Yeah, and right. it's still it's still a powerful industry today. I live in Florida, and there's a large lake in Central Florida called Lake Okeechobee, which I suspect you're familiar with. And largely, because sugar is a big industry down here in Florida, and they have these large fields that they use uh, essentially uh, agri- uh, factory farming methods, and all this fertilizer runoff from the sugar industry is going into the lake, and it's, it's causing these, and it goes into this the rivers that uh, feed into it, or that they feed into, and uh, causing a massive algae bloom, so it's just causing loads of problems. And Fortunately, there are some solutions we're actually involved in uh, seeking to have some regenerative agricultural practices to remediate that, and it could, could solve the whole problem, but uh, it still stems from sugar. <laughs> Today's well, a is day.
1: I mean, You know, one of the issues I wanted to do with my book is keep it short.
0: No, book it's book. not a short Tell book, it you know, but it's, it's, a it's a good book.
1: Yeah, good calories, bad calories. People would say, this book is long, but good. I wanted a nice, short, palatable book. In fact, in an ideal world, it would have been 100 pages shorter. But had I wanted to write 1,000 pages about the evils of sugar, it would not have been difficult. And the story in Florida, in fact, (laughs) the Cuban sugar... Family that in part controls Florida sugar is a terrific story. This was the person who Bill Clinton was on the phone with when Monica Lewinsky was in his office. Was this famous Cuban uh, sugar refiner? I mean, it's you know from a narrative viewpoint, it's a great story. But I wanted to keep this book short to get the point across about.
0: Yeah. Well, you did a magnificent job. It's just so enjoyable to read. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard book to put down because it's just so fascinating. Because stuff you never, I mean, you kind of intuitively suspected, but you never really understood.
1: Right. Well, that's how I felt about it.
0: Terrific. So um, maybe you can touch on the, um, you know, sort of the historic, I mean, you, you just started to discuss how sugar was is starting to decrease in the 70s and started to go back up in the 80s and actually continued to increase for another 20 years or so. But now it started to come down. So maybe you can give us some perspective on that process and you know what might be responsible for the, that that sh- shift and transition transition.
1: Well, this is what's interesting. So again in the 80s it starts to skyrocket again in part because of the success of this idea that low fat is the problem, we should all eat low fat diets or aware of some of the repercussions of that like you know foods the iconic example is, is yogurt where you take some of the fat out and you add high fructose corn syrup to replace the mouth feel and the taste and you end up with this fruity sugary yogurt that nobody knows is bad for you and can be pitched as a health food because it's low in fat um it's funny my wife uh we get a these meal delivery services now here in oakland where you get the ingredients to cook your own meal and the recipe and the one that we're getting yesterday, uh, delivered a Greek dinner that was delicious, but they included zero-fat French yogurt <laughs> rather than full-fat Greek yogurt, and I told my wife we're done with them. <laughs> um, Anyway, so you have this phenomenon where people take a little bit of fat out of the diet, they dump sugar back in, in the form of high fructose corn syrup, you've got all these juices exploding, Snapple and uh, Soba iced teas, where all the calories are coming from high fructose corn syrup, but people don't realize it's sugar. And this continues through the late 90s, when suddenly we become aware, based on a couple of NIH, uh, excuse me, CDC reports, that there's an obesity epidemic so that's first reported in 95 it's a lot of press in 98 that's the first time i reported it and suddenly 99 sugar consumption peaks caloric sweetener consumption peaks in 1999-2000 um soda consumption peaks then as well and it's been coming down pretty steadily ever since Part of what happened, I think, is we became aware that high fructose corn syrup was also sugar. Although when I first started reporting this in the early 2000s, even most researchers didn't understand that. I talked to you know, epidemiologists at Harvard, gastroenterologists, people who were studying either fructose or high fructose corn syrup or sugar, and they didn't understand that they were all sort of roughly 50-50 combinations of the two. And um, you know, as more and more articles are hammering on obesity, as a societal epidemic, and it's apparently as more and more people are obese, one of the first things you tend to give up as you start to get fatter or at least you don't do it publicly as much as sugar. So I think pretty much what we've been seeing since then is, you know, just an awareness that this has no place in a healthy diet if you're overweight, obese, or diabetic, Um, You saw the same thing happen in the 50s as we first started getting a lot of media attention on obesity and the nation went on a diet, which is how it was described in the media. One of the first things they do is switch from caloric sweeteners to non-caloric sweeteners. And that's what drove one of the other uh, PR campaigns of the sugar industry in the 1960s was to get artificial sweeteners, particular saccharin and cyclamate taken off the market because they were eating up their market share. And the soda companies were just delighted. They didn't care. They were happy to switch to artificial sweeteners, which were cheaper anyway. So it was up to the sugar industry now, against the soda industry to basically fund research and lobby the Food and Drug Administration to get them to understand how potentially bad cyclamates and saccharin are. And then by 71, cyclamates are banned and saccharin is tainted as a carcinogen. This is all fueled by sugar industry money going after what they saw as financial competitors.
0: Yeah, and and, uh, they quickly adopted an alternative, aspartame, uh, which has its own pernicious history, and then subsequently sucralose, for which I wrote a book called Sweet Deception, which Johnson & Johnson, the manufacturer of Splenda at the time, threatened me with a $20 million lawsuit if I published the book But uh, by a 30-page legal document they sent from the New York law firm, but I published it. So, you know, I think we've been, and I've certainly... Uh, proselytize about the dangers of artificial sweeteners on the site, aside from writing books. So there's regular, it's not only my exposure, but others, but clearly the soda industry has lost billions of dollars in decreased sales from artificial sweeteners. But I, And that's a good direction. And, and if, if you, anyone who flies, if they're observant, they can see when they go around and ask for your drinks that, that there has been a radical decline in the number of people requesting soda. It's relatively unusual. And in my experience, it's the minority of people who are now doing that. It's usually water. Well, we
1: yeah and i think it's interesting the i think the soda industry sees clearly the sugar and beverage industry clearly sees a writing on the wall i think they're you know they their activities now like this crazy global energy balance network to me are they they're just they're trying to delay the inevitable as long as they can they have a fiduciary responsibility to their taxpayers all you know widows of fbi agents killed in you know, active duty. And therefore, they're going to continue selling this stuff as long as they can and as much as they can. But meanwhile, they're diversifying badly. Um, I like to think back to the 70s and imagine the first, you know, conference room in which somebody suggested that they could sell coca-cola or pepsi could sell bottled water like you could take tap water (laughs) put it in a bottle and make money on it this guy got laughed out of the office and has been unemployed ever since while he's watching now billions of dollars trillions of dollars going into bottled water but even i noticed with the olympics um if you looked at the coke commercials on the olympics and recently they're all about much smaller sizes. They're now drinking what look like they may even be 8-ounce old-fashioned bottles of Coke. Yeah, and I, I, I th-
0: don't think it was your book, but I think Marion Nestle's recent book actually addresses that. So even though they're selling smaller amounts, they're actually making more profit because of the just the, the way the, the packaging occurs. So they actually make more money on the smaller bottles.
1: Yeah, no, it's quite possible. So, yeah. um, But it, there's a, there were a lot of changes. One of the things, again, we didn't realize is how the American diet sort of changed and shifts now. A lot of things happen. A lot of the things you discuss, you know, vegetable oils came in. We saw, you know, the higher refining of, of flour. So you go from relatively unrefined flour to this, you know, vitaminless, mineral deficient white flour. Um, So glycemic index is going up over the course of the century, but one of the things that fascinated me was, again, how sugar consumption changed. So back, even as late as the first half of the 19th century, sugar was so expensive that it was primarily still a luxury for adults and kids got a little when you bought it in a big tub at the local <laughs> store and you brought it home and maybe the mother would bake with it but there wasn't a lot to throw around and then in the mid-19th century 1840s 1850s the candy industry starts up the chocolate industry starts up um The ice cream industry explodes, all in this 20-year period, and then followed in the 1860s, 1870s, begins the soft drink industry. And all of this is targeted at children. Mm -hmm. And even when you think today at 20, when you look back at the candies, the chocolates that we ate growing up that are still the primary brands today, they all date, all those chocolate bars date from like the 1890s to the 1920s, the Mars bars, the Snickers bars, you know, Mr. Good bar, the... Um, all of that was launched then, and it was all targeted to children. And the only thing that got delayed was fruit juices and breakfast cereals. Oh so yeah, breakfast- I definitely
0: wanted to touch on those breakfast candies. That's a fascinating yeah. story with Harvey Kellogg and the sanatorium in Michigan. And so yeah, so
1: breakfast cereals that. come out of these sanatoriums. These health retreats in michigan run by kellogg and his competitor and former patient post and they're used the ideas, you know, we need, uh, they, they thought that uh, dyspepsia, stomach indigestion was a cause of all chronic diseases. So if they could cure dyspepsia and they could do it by putting, getting a lot of fiber into the diet. So grape nuts was the first cereal that post mass produced. He beat Kellogg who then came out with cornflakes. And this is in early 1900s, 1900 and 1898, right around that. But there, these are health sanatoriums and these people do not believe sugar are good for you. In fact, the elder Kellogg goes off to Europe, comes back and finds out that his younger brother, who was left in charge of production of cornflakes, added sugar to the cornflakes to make them uh, more stable, because sugar is an incredibly useful product in foods. And the older Kellogg blows up and gets mad at his, at his brother, but then they leave it in because the customer likes it. And in fact, the first, around 1905 at the World's Fair, 1904 World's Fair, the first um, really sugar-coated cereal is introduced as a dessert, and nobody follows up on them because they don't think Americans will ever eat this because it's, <laughs> you know they don't have it. It's just too sweet. Who would possibly eat this kind of junk regularly? Um, by the 1930s, a Philadelphia engineer is sitting around watching his kids eat his cereal one morning, and they're dumping sugar into it, and he's horrified. This guy, Jim Rex, and it's this amazing story because he's watching them do it, and instead of doing what I would do, which is like get mad at them and throw out the sugar because I'm a food zealot, he thinks, what if I could create sugar that's already cereal that's already sugared? And therefore, my, I don't have to watch my kids throwing sugar into the cereal bowl. So he does that. He's an engineer and inventor. It's got problems. It tends to stick together in the box. He sells it to a different entrepreneur. Eventually, it gets sold to Post. And suddenly, during the Second World early years of the Second World War and following, the, the cereal industry centered in Michigan, General Mills, Post, Kellogg starts putting out sugar and it's like an arms race once one does it they all have to do it and you could see and there's a wonderful book written called serializing america by a couple of sugar industry executives turned historians and you know time and time again they have the nutritionists in these companies complaining And then the promoters, the salesmen, the executives rationalizing why it is they have to make cereals that are as much as 50% sugar by calories. And in the 1960s, it's everywhere. Now you have this massive explosion. And breakfast, as you put it, has been turned into an effect dessert, a variation on dessert. And now we're consuming fruit juices, which come in. For fruit juices, we needed refrigeration and home refrigerators, which only started becoming very common in the 1930s. I don't know if you remember when we grew up, you used to buy, you know, frozen orange juice concentrate, and it would sit in the freezer, and you'd take it out, and you'd have to defrost and then put it in the blender, and you'd get like, you know, but by the 1960s, you're beginning to be able to buy cartons of fruit juice preserved. And now dessert is orange juice, sugared cereal, bananas. It's a massive dose of sugar. And I personally wonder how much of the obesity epidemic, which begins to explode in the US in the late 1970s, was basically these children who, for the first time in history, were force fed on sugar. For breakfast and then the rest of the day coming of age and as they come and came of age they manifested obesity and as the girls came of age became women and became pregnant they passed this on to their children
0: Yes, indeed. So that's a fascinating story, and you go into more details in the book, but I'm wondering if you, at this point, can also share information about the, the, the connection and the synergy between sugar and tobacco, which is not intuitive at all. Fascinating story of how you go into it, and it actually is responsible for increasing the use of tobacco. And then, interestingly, that same science that the tobacco industry used to, to support their – their product is also copied, or tax, maybe size slash taxic is copied by the sugar industry to support theirs. So it's an interesting marriage.
1: Yeah, it is an interesting marriage, which was a term that was used by a sugar industry executive, a report that he put out in the 1950s. Um, this is an amazing story, and it's one of the things that the internet has done for us as journalists, um, because if, I don't know if you ever read Sugar Blues coming up, which is sort oh, sure. of
0: iconic. W- w- William Dufty. Yeah,
1: anti-sugar book of the 70s, Gloria Vanderbilt's husband. And he talks about sugar and tobacco. And I remember 15 years ago trying to track down this story. And I couldn't do it, so I could never confirm it. But now with the internet and the availability of all these, you can track down archives. So now there are documents that allow you to confirm that story and even find it in books as well, like a book written by White Gardner, who was head of tobacco research for the USDA. and so, and it, it was told, this story was also told in the monumental history of the sugar industry written by, of the tobacco industry written by the Stanford historian of science, Robert Proctor in 2011, but Proctor was focused on tobacco. So he said, isn't this fascinating? Right, but let's move on. I actually say, isn't this fascinating? I'm gonna tell the story, even though I'm more interested in obesity and diabetes, if you're gonna make the argument that sugar may have killed more people than tobacco which is the argument I make, you might as well realize that tobacco wouldn't have killed as many people as it did, not even close, without sugar. So Mm -hmm. it's actually a very safe argument to make because sugar gets a lot of credit for the tobacco deaths. Big uh, revolution in tobacco processing in the 19th century was something called flu-curing tobacco. Okay, Proctor refers to this as perhaps the deadliest invention in the history of mankind, worse than guns or nuclear weapons, and how many people it's killed. So, when you flu cure tobacco, you, you dry the leaves over these uh, heated iron plates and What this process does, aside from drying the leaves over the course of a week, is it primarily increases the sugar content in the leaves. So a tobacco leaf, which might start out 50% carbs and 3% sugar, ends up at the end of this at about with about 22 percent sugar um the equivalent is a sugar industry document it's like what happens to a banana as it ripens it goes from something that's barely edible to sweeter and sweeter the riper it gets this was what happens when you flu cure tobacco so once you've got a high sugar content leaves and this was particularly something called um flu cured virginia tobacco you take tobacco that's hard to inhale because it's alkaline. The smoke is alkaline. When you have alkaline smoke, it irritates the mucous membranes and triggers your cough response. And the higher the sugar content, the more acidic the smoke becomes and the easier it is to inhale. So the easier it is to draw into your lungs. So what flu cure tobacco did is it allowed for cigarettes to be inhalable in a way that pipe tobacco or uh Cigar tobacco wasn't. And up until nineteen thirteen, cigarettes were made from this flu-cured Virginia tobacco and you could inhale it. But the other problem is the Virginia tobacco has a very low nicotine content. So you could inhale it, but it wasn't very addictive. You didn't have any reason to inhale it because you didn't there wasn't a lot of nicotine to get into your lungs on um, 1911, the Tobacco Trust is broken up by the Supreme Court and R.J. Reynolds is reformed and it's a company that used to sell chewing tobacco, known as Burley or plug Tobacco, and it decides to blend their Burley tobacco, of which they have a lot, with the flu-cured Virginia tobacco. And the thing about this chewing tobacco is that it was marinated This was another invention of the 19th century, and what they called a sugar sauce. So you basically take these leaves, which can soak up 50% of their weight in sugar, and you marinate them in sugar, maple syrup, licorice, spices, and you get the wonderful taste of chewing tobacco. And by doing so, you make the burly tobacco inhalable, and it gives it a wonderful aromatic taste. And the burly tobacco has a high nicotine content. And then nicotine is very available. So now you mix the two. In the first blended cigarette ever, it's called the American blended cigarette. Camel was the first one produced in 1913. And you have a product that's uniquely capable of being inhaled, of getting large amounts of nicotine into the enormous surface area in the lungs, and along with it, enormous amount of carcinogens. And is going to be the most addictive substance known to man. And camels explode in popularity. By 1920, they're the most popular cigarette in America. By the 1930s, virtually every cigarette in America is a blended cigarette of mostly Burley and this flu cured Virginia tobacco. Lung cancer rates explode. They're virtually non-existent prior to the first appearance with Camel. And then as camels and the American blended cigarettes take off first in the U.S. and then slowly around, it's all based on the sugar content to the leaf. It's an amazing story. And then 1950s, the sugar industry, when they're worried about diversifying because they're afraid people are getting fatter, consuming sugar, they're going to consume less. What are we going to do? In the 1950s, they're probably saying, look. We take all the credit for the cigarette explosion of the 20th century, and cigarettes are going to be a place we're going to be able to sell tens of millions of pounds of sugar every year, as we've been doing. And then 1960s, the Surgeon General report on smoking and cancer comes along, and it becomes clear that cigarettes cause lung cancer, and now suddenly the sugar industry doesn't want to take credit anymore for the explosion in cigarette smoking and both the tobacco industry and the sugar industry go into this sort of uh you know mode that we've come to associate with tobacco where you're producing science that is paid for with the goal of sowing confusion so that no consensus can be formed. I think the tobacco industry was much worse because the evidence against tobacco was much more concrete. So, And they knew that all hinged on this issue of whether tobacco was addictive, whereas sugar, I think clearly it's addictive in some way. If you have children, you are going to believe that sugar is addictive if you're a rational human being or you've got
0: well, it's, it's a it's yeah. the same story. I mean, today, twenty first century people. We look back, at, and wonder how the population could possibly not understand that tobacco was toxic and right. deadly. And I think probably in the next generation or two, we're going to look back at the the, the those individuals to look back at us and say, how could you not understand that sugar was was damaging? You know, so, I hope
1: that's true, and I do think we're getting there. Um, Yeah, I think we're I think we've reached a tipping point. Like even my book is already kind of riding the wave. Yeah. But what's amazing is how we managed to miss this for fifty years and it took a half dozen of us. Well
0: yeah, right, but, but it's for the issues you, just, you so eloquently articulate and investigate in your book and expose, and, and thank you so much for exposing the tobacco connection, and I just wanted to add that the 21st uh, century understanding of that is, that, uh, is the uh, influence of uh, factory farming where they're using these phosphate fertilizers, which were found out, are actually contaminated with radioactive polonium, which may be a major factor for the increase in, in the cancers is this radioactivity they're inhaling into the lots
1: and yeah, no it's uh there's again one of the the messages that i took away from this is first of all doing understanding the relationship between diet the environment and our health is an excruciatingly difficult job um something i repeat several times in the book is we're looking at we're trying to understand the the cause of chronic diseases that take decades to manifest and we've only got we could do it either in animals and then you never know what you learn in animals will that extrapolate to humans, or you can do it over short periods of time, a few months, maybe a year, and then you have to wonder, you know, try to extrapolate to decades. And uh, so the science is really hard, and as a result, it's, you know, a good um, working assumption is that take everything with a grain of salt, but you have to establish certain inherent belief systems. And so, you know, a good one is if we didn't do it 2,000 years ago, we might want to, if we didn't eat it 2,000 years ago, we might not want to eat it today,
0: Yeah, um, you know, hey. if it's Let's address some of your critics uh, because it's very clear the sugar industry is going to lash out. Even in my own site, when we had these anti-sugar articles, the American right. Beverage Association. They, they, can you, if you can believe it, they post comments supporting this, supporting these global energy ballots, and it's like they get nagged like crazy. But nevertheless, they still do it. Okay. So the, the sugar industry is going, to, is going to come at you, and they and they're they're going to state that there's no definitive proof. And you admit in your book that you you concede that point. But how do you address? Their skepticism and at, at, at accepting what you're, what you're uh, really exposing.
1: Well, and this is the truth. I do have a paragraph in the beginning where I say I'm going to agree with what the defenders of sugar are going to argue, which is there's no definitive proof. If this was, I like to think of it as a legal case, mm-hmm. and if it was a legal case where we have the crime committed as millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of chronic disease deaths each year. Um, in particular, obesity and diabetes, which we know are, are relatively new to the human species in this massive, I mean, um, at least the, the prevalence we see it today. And so something's causing that. And we want to know who who, or what's responsible. And so, as I say in the book, and, and the way I think about it, if it was, you know, what you've got is, clearly enough evidence to indict sugar as the single prominent environmental trigger of this disease but because of the problems with doing the science because of the fact that everyone consumes sugar so unlike smoking with smoking you could compare smokers to non-smokers at least 50 percent of the population didn't smoke but virtually everyone consumes sugar then when you find people who don't they're ludicrously health conscious (laughs) and they're different in a lot of ways from the people who do so you just very hard to do this science so then you have to establish what's the most likely scenario that's the best science can ever do what's the most likely scenario And what i'm going to argue in the book is that sugar as the cause of these chronic diseases is so likely that regardless of what the sugar industry says about whether the proof is you know uh unambiguous or not which i clearly agree it's not You can make the decision, is this something I should be consuming a lot less of and maybe none at all. And I'm going to argue that that's a reasonable decision, it's a sound decision. Um, It's hard to imagine, and I have caveats to this too, it's hard to imagine how you are going to harm yourself by not consuming sugar. And the obvious thing to do is an experiment, so I used to be a smoker, a lot of what I The way I think about this is informed by my history as a cigarette smoker, and it took me 20 years to quit. And the first three weeks after quitting is miserable. I mean, All you think about is not smoking, not smoking, you wake up thinking about it, you go to sleep not thinking about it. After about three weeks, something happens where it gets a little bit easier, and the next nine months, I actually had to warn my friends, look, I'm going to be so cranky, so grouchy, I'm probably going to alienate you, have patience and bear with me. And at the end of about a year, you're kind of over the worst of it, but you're still susceptible to being sucked back in. And then you get to about three years and you think, I can't imagine why I ever smoked. And I never want to smoke again. And there's no way in the world I could get sucked back in. And I think the same thing could happen with sugar. So the key is to experiment. And I think the sugar industry should be... They they can't really argue against saying, look, just see what it's like to live without sugar. Give it a few weeks. If you make a few weeks, give it a few months. Try to get to the point where you're past the worst of the cravings, where you could walk past the bakery, smell the morning bun, and not want to walk in and eat it, or at least be able to resist walking in and eating it. Um, I think the sugar industry should also, as they point out that the evidence is, uh, is not unambiguous it's incumbent upon them to point out what research should be done to resolve this issue it's not enough to say my client is innocent because there's not enough evidence to convict them the point is there's plenty of evidence what would it take to you know settle this issue and you could do that with uh research randomized controlled trials these kind of studies are very expensive so again back in the 1970s when the sugar industry was going after the anti-sugar people and they put together meetings and they hired scientists consultants and asked them what should we do the scientist consultants said this is an incredibly important issue do the studies necessary to settle it doesn't matter what it costs don't give it lip service spend the money if it's 100 million dollars it's 100 million dollars and settle it so we know whether or not your product is killing people. There's enough evidence. You could still make that argument to the sugar and corn refiners today. Don't tell us the evidence is ambiguous. We know that. Yeah. But we think you're killing us. Yeah. But so what do we have to do to solve it? Settle it. Yeah,
0: yeah I agree. <laughs> And and you know, let me just give you my viewpoint on the process because I couldn't agree with you more with respect that sugar is a major variable in this equation. But it's not just sugar, and obviously there's a lot of other factors, but let's just extend it slightly to refined carbohydrates. Right. And the fact that and it's not even just other types of sugars, but it's you know it could be starchy healthy vegetables. But the fact that people right. are eating so many of these and their glucose levels and glucagon levels are not glucagon. Uh, glycogen levels are so chronically elevated that they they essentially their body forgets the ability, as you well know, to burn fat. So if you right. can't burn fat, you can't access, so you're going to be cr- – those cravings, you will always have them unless you get off of it. So the part of the problem is to get off of those carbs, start to burn fat, and then you can cycle. You can get some of those right. back in. But that's the strategy. So if you just stop sugar, I think it's definitely going to help a lot of people, but it it has to be a bit broader. Well, this is actually –
1: and there's two issues, and I discuss this in the beginning of the book, because obviously I agree with you about what it takes to really prevent and treat obesity and diabetes and pre-diabetes, and it's get off all these carbs. Yeah. But the two questions, one is, what's, what causes it? What's the environmental trigger? What's the, you know, fill in the blank, is cigarettes are to lung cancer, blank is to obesity and diabetes. And we, got, we want to know what that blank is. Because until we identify it unambiguously, we can't solve the problem on a societal level. Getting rid of sugar, let's say tomorrow, boom, I get, I'm, you know, can magically snap my fingers, sugar vanishes, nobody can consume it anymore, there's no sugary beverages. Um, I think everybody gets healthier. But some large proportion of the population that's already obese and diabetic are going to stay obese and diabetic. And now the question is, what do you do for them and that's where you have to get rid of conceivably all the carbs, so that they can now begin to oxidize, mobilize, and oxidize their fat. And again, this the evidence here is ambiguous as well. But this is, you know, I think there's enough to make that statement. I believe it. And again, people can experiment. So you've got this one issue, which is what is the environmental trigger of the disease? And I think it's sugar add sugar to any population so southeast asians were already consuming a lot of rice and wheat and had a low-fat diet but were relatively healthy until they start consuming sugar in quantities and the inuit are consuming almost exclusively uh you know uh, uh, animal products from marine animals and fish and caribou add sugar boom you get the same diseases so that's the issue this book is addressing and then the next step preventing and treating individuals with obesity and diabetes and metabolic disorders, for them, quite possibly, you want to get rid of all the carbs. And again, I, obviously, my first book, uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories, was an implication of refined grain, white flour as well. I'm not sure any grain is good for you, but again, that's where the the
0: well. If you can burn fat, you can certainly tolerate them. It probably is maybe beneficial, depending on the individual. Although you can certainly make a strong argument for restricting gluten, gluten grains. But uh, the it's interesting too is how you say processed sugar, and you do discuss this in the book. That I mean, sugar I think is as you mentioned in the book is like 10,000 years old, at least from the records that we can tell. But it really doesn't start to become a problem until they be develop the ability industrially to process it and essentially produce as much in one day as was produced in a year
1: that's true but again when you say it doesn't become as much, it doesn't become a problem on a societal level but you go mm-hmm. back to Hindu medical texts from 2,000 years ago mm-hmm. and you've got them blaming clearly identifying diabetes and obesity and blaming it on sugar and White rice consumption two thousand years ago. So it might have only been one patient, one individual in a thousand who was obese instead of one in three. <laughs> but that person would not be obese if it wasn't for the sugar and the white flour in the diet. So again, it's um, you know, the last chapter of my book is called How Little Is Still Too Much.
0: Yeah. So why don't you address address that? Because I think that's a really important point. Great well, and this
1: is that. the thing, it's, you know, the temptation, and lean people always say this, it drives me crazy, the key is to eat it in moderation, everything in moderation, sugar in moderation, um, you know, it just sounds so reasonable, except you never define what moderation is. So moderation is defined as the amount you can eat and not be fat or diabetic. And of course, that could be zero for some people, mm-hmm. because some people are clearly genetically Uh, epigenetically programmed to become obese and other people not. The other issue that's not taken into effect is, you know, comes back to the smoking. Clearly, there's a level at which you could smoke cigarettes and the increased risk to lung cancer or heart disease would be trivial and not worth confronting, not worth dealing with if you really like smoking. And that's probably true of sugar as well. Then again, if you look at a societal level, there's maybe 70 pounds per capita of sugar availability, and you start to see this explosion in diabetes. Um, So maybe if you stayed below that, if you stayed at 40 pounds or 25 pounds per capita, which is about- two
0: or five.
1: (laughs) Or two or five, you'd be healthy. But the question is when you have sugar around you everywhere. Yeah. Is it the equivalent of smoking one cigarette a day in a population where everybody's smoking? Are you going to be able to stay at one cigarette a day? Or is it easier to just quit, to go through that experiment, get over the addiction, get over the craving, and get to the point where you don't want to smoke or you don't want to eat sugar Mm -hmm. because you know it's going to ignite this craving? Um, Some people can clearly deal with moderate amounts of sugar Mm -hmm. and other people can't. I'm one who I find it much easier to not eat any at all than to try and eat it in moderation. My wife can order a wonderful dessert at an expensive restaurant, take two bites, push it away, and that's the end of it. Um, I am not her.
0: Well, she probably has a very well-developed ability to to catabolize and burn fat for her primary fuel. So she doesn't need that. Yeah, I I couldn't agree. I mean, desserts, small amounts occasionally are not harmful. In fact, they may even be healthy. I'm developing this. Hypothesis is the feast, famine, cycling mode, where you cannot just be completely taking high fats and low carbs continuously. I'm convinced that's that is not a healthy strategy either. You need some healthy carbs, but intermittently, sporadically, cycling.
1: Yeah, it's possible. Again, I would have to see clinical trials. Oh, to sure, sure, You know, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a
0: no, no, I, I agree from the science yeah. perspective, but you know, anecdotally, we're finding this in you know pretty yeah. significant clinical populations that that's the way that people are responding. They're they're responding adversely when they don't get any carbs, and that, that they get them occasionally, they actually. And you know, what boils out of this? I'm not sure if you're aware of it. I pulled up some research recently that you know what what is the speculative mechanism of how insulin works? What is tra- what is the thought? Yeah, how does it work in bio- biologically?
1: Upregulating the GLUT4 transporter.
0: No, no. Actually, well, it's t- traditionally thought that it increases yeah. the introduction of glucose into the cell, right? Right. That's the conventional. Oh, okay. that, yeah, that, yeah. But that probably is not the way it works. So really, the reason it works is that it inhibits the the hepatic gluconeogenesis, so that if you have very low insulin levels, and right. for someone who's not eating any glucose at all, I mean like at 0.1, then they can't suppress the liver's producing l- glucose, so you have high glucose levels, which is not healthy. So as soon as you have a little healthy carbs, man, your blood sugar drops like 20 or 30 ports, which is counterintuitive.
1: Yeah. No, it's, um, I mean, again, this is what I mean. This is very tricky science Mm -hmm. and, you know, ultimately what you end up asking, what I end up asking is how do we know whether you're going to live longer? So everything Mm -hmm. you can say is true
0: Mm -hmm.
1: step by step by step. But ultimately what you want to know is if I do this, will I be leaner, healthier and live longer, happier? Um, assuming that's your goal, I mean, some people would be perfectly happy with performance-enhancing drugs or foods that, you know, allow them to win the Tour de France and die at 40 of a massive heart attack. I, but did everyone... you write
0: that on your book? I th- so quoted the study where a, a significant—I think half of the athletes, if they were given the choice to take something or do something that would allow them to win every race for the next three years and then die, would do it.
1: You know, I didn't never written about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're To that level of excellence, right. you know.
0: Half half. Yeah. It's crazy, At,
1: you know. Different standards. It's a yeah. shame, but what's interesting getting back to sugar is the 1920s sugar was treated as a performance enhancing drug. So it was given a I found these articles where there were the Harvard rowing coach was giving it to the Harvard rowing team to see if it would improve their performance. There's a story about I think it was the Yale soccer team or Columbia, about taking sugar before a game. They got whomped five to one, but they felt better. Um, so back in the 1910s, 1920s, this ability of sugar to produce free energy, oh, generate that's a good energy.
0: point too. Just maybe touch on this, and then we'll probably have to sign off. But one of the reasons that sugar is so addictive is its connection with dopamine, and you discussed that in the book. And and right. it actually, how it improves increases that. But then, it's like anything; it's just like insulin receptor sensitivity decreases with time. The more you use it, the, the harder it gets. So maybe you can address that in the connection of dopamine, because that's the feel good hormone.
1: Well, again, one of the the arguments for why sugar is addictive, or the research that implicates, is is there's a there's a part of our brain what's called the reward center of the brain and the nucleus accumbens which is the the area of the brain that all addictive substances tend to trigger and they trigger dopamine secretion so the idea is originally this evolved to reward sensations that are absolutely necessary for the uh procreation species so you know sex and eating in particular you feel the pleasurable sensation the nucleus accumbens and you want more of it and so you continue to do more of these then addictive substances are substances that just happen to hijack that mechanism you know you take humans throughout history they try and taste everything they find the things that promote a sort of exaggerated response in the nucleus accumbens, and that's something they want to take or inject or refine and do again. And sugar clearly stimulates dopamine secretion in the nucleus accumbens. And what happens is with most of these substances is as it stimulates dopamine secretion, you need more and more of that substance to get the same response from the, the dopamine receptors, and then you need... Um, Naturally occurring pleasure, sex, and eating don't interest you that much. So, this would explain why, you know, alcoholics, uh, drug addicts, etc., tend to be focused almost exclusively on the behavior that really triggers a nucleus accumbens and the dopamine secretion. The same to some extent with sugar. I do have a friend who points out that if you buy new shoes, that will also trigger the response in the nucleus accumbens, so you can't claim beyond a doubt that just because something triggers a dopamine response that's addictive, although I know plenty of people are addicted to buying new shoes. Um, so this is the, the idea, there's um, some French research very little research on sugar addiction, which is fascinating. Again, nobody really cared until the 1970s, 1980s. And then the anti-sugar science was so strong that if you wanted to measure something, study something like sugar addiction, you were considered a quack. So there was one group that did this research at Princeton and despite it being Princeton, I don't think they were that good. And then there's a French researcher in France who was studying sugar addiction in rodents and found that you could basically, you could addict a rat to cocaine or heroin and then offer it sugar instead of cocaine or heroin and it would switch to the sugar within a day and if it only could get sugar or cocaine it would continue to prefer sugar over cocaine from then on in so there's some again reasonable reason to believe this is a highly addictive substance but it's also clearly addictive Differently than these other substances.
0: Well, I, I I think we've covered a lot of great points in the book, and there believe me, there are more. We just don't have time to go in them. So, you know, this is a great book. I really enjoyed it, uh, and I think it will play a, a significant role in those of us who are more academic and intellectually oriented. Need to understand it at an intellectual level the reasons why, and then that could hope hopefully help motivate us to engage in a behavior that will eliminate sugar, like Gary eliminated cigarettes so many years ago and as a result of that uh, then uh, you know we we'll get we'll start to feel good and then we'll you know in several years down the road we we'll say how could we possibly go there and believe me I right. it, it, there's no doubt in my mind I've experienced a person I've seen it in so many of the friends and family that've implemented that when you eliminate these carbohydrates and, and, and change your metabolism so you're burning fat as your primary fuel. Those cravings disappear; they are gone. You do not crave these junk foods, and it's not—it's not a struggle. It is initially to get there, but it's not—it's not—it's just—it's just easy as can be, and there, there's no effort involved so it's but you have to make the jump and the jump is a bit of a challenge and hopefully gary's book will help you the case against sugar get it on amazon now uh it, it is just it definitely it's a good one to have in your library for the reasons of you just heard <laughs> okay. all right any, any closing comments gary Well, uh, after mine.
1: and no that's all i mean you've pretty much uh encapsulated it dr mccall i would add that even those of us who don't Necessarily need an intellectual mm-hmm. uh, awareness of this, understanding how we got here, the history, mm-hmm. and arming yourself with these facts. I think, and these, these, you know, the awareness of how we were brought to this place. Where in effect, the, the entire population can be seen as not not only being addicted to this substance, but having been transformed by our addiction. So we're literally a different species. Mm-hmm than we were before sugar entered the diet. And I think it just it really helps helps certainly helps me to understand this from a historical perspective. Yeah, and and
0: the reason being is that there's still a very significant portion of the population who does not accept what you've written in the book, who will right. vehemently argue very similar to the way that those who were uh, those who argued back in the 60s and 70s.
1: Right, definitely. And,
0: so but you you've, you've you've created a great resource to help catalyze essentially the uh, understanding and practical implementation of this which is getting rid of sugar so thank you for doing that it's great
1: okay thank you for having me